Hello, readers. Henry Sanderson is a journalist who has covered commodities and mining for the Financial Times and is the China correspondent for Bloomberg, during which he also authored a book on the international impact of China's state capitalism called China's Superbank. He's also the author of the excellent new book, Volt Rush, The Winners and Losers and the Race to Go Green. Henry, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Yeah, good, thanks. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So what was your goal with this book? The goal with this book was really to show that the transition to to clean energy, to electric vehicles um, involves, you know, a lot more than than people might think. It involves building completely new supply chains that span the globe, that involve a lot of geopolitics. And if we can replace this fossil fuel infrastructure, which is vast, you know, which is absolutely vast and so, so embedded in so many countries, we're going to equally need to build, you know, a clean energy supply chain, a clean energy infrastructure, and and also to point out that a lot of this involves raw materials and and mining from the earth. Yes, we might, you know, it's a good news that we don't need oil. We, you know, might not need so much oil and coal, um, which you know, obviously just burnt off, uh, producing pollution. But we might also need, we will also need lots of minerals. Uh, to build these batteries, to build the the clean energy infrastructure, and when we're in this period of exponential demand increase, when we're you know this transition is happening quite quickly now, um, we're going to need a lot of these minerals, and we're going to need them quite quickly. So this this is the point of my book to be, you know, I bought a I I have an electric car um, as a new electric car owner. I sort of you know fascinated by the story behind um, the vehicle that that, that I sit in that, that I drive right, and it's it says a lot about geopolitics and and where we're going. Yeah, and you really focus on four different materials: lithium, cobalt, copper, and nickel. We will certainly get to each of those, the paths that they take to get to the batteries yeah. that power our phones, our computers, our electric vehicles as well, and also who really owns a majority of those various markets. Spoiler alert, it's pretty much one country. First, though, you did look at the history of electric vehicles. The first electric vehicles, interestingly, appeared in the late 1800s and early 1900s as various industries were trying to power these motorized vehicles through different means. I think you even said at the late uh, late 1800s, electric was the most popular mode of powering these new motorized vehicles. Even the great Thomas Edison was putting his mind and that of his brightest employees and trying to figure out how to make the right electric vehicle. So ultimately, why did electric vehicles not catch on at this time? Yeah, it's a really fascinating period of history because you had these different vehicles jostling for, for market share. You had the steam vehicles, you had the electric vehicles, you had the uh, in, internal combustion engine. And, you know, you know, even Henry Ford's wife, she she drove a Detroit electric uh, vehicle. Um, actually, you know, the, the early internal combustion engines weren't that that popular because you had a you know crankshaft you, you had to turn. Um, so there was a really interesting moment where even you could see that EVs could be used for certain use cases, such as inner city, um, such as taxi cabs, and perhaps internal combustion for, for longer use cases. But then what happened was internal combustion just swept all before it, um, and and the rest the rest is history. But I think a number of number of factors, uh, you know, made made battery cars. Um, difficult the most important is the battery you know there are lots of promises um edison made promises other people made promises you know like a lot of startups do today that 
hey guys, we got this fantastic battery, you know, it's gonna change everything. It's gonna, you know, in those days, get rid of the horse, you know, and deliver this amazing vehicle. But batteries are super hard um, to, 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 to make progress in. And, and I think a lot of people's expectations were dashed. They were raised and then dashed. And then also the, the charging infrastructure wasn't, um, you, you know, wasn't as widespread as, um, you know, e e even steam, you, you could fill up uh, more, in more places and, uh, you know, petrol and gasoline, um, you, you could as well. So yeah, there are the, the number of factors, but it was a really interesting period of time. As gas-powered machines completely took over in the 20th century, there was still curiosity about other ways to power vehicles. Ford tested an electric car in 1967 to no avail. Exxon and other big oil companies were also working to find yeah. that next great energy source in the early 1970s. How does Exxon actually get partial credit for the discovery of the lithium battery? And why are lithium ion batteries so crucial for the evolution of electric vehicles? Yeah, so it's interesting when you look back, because in the 70s, um, it was an oil crisis, very, you know, very much like now we're in this energy crisis. Uh, the 70s was an oil crisis, um, you know, OPEC uh, was formed, etc. And the Western world really was was shocked by that and looked for ways to to move to clean energy. And, and Exxon was involved in uh, solar and other projects that, uh, you know, is studying uh, carbon dioxide emissions and, and impact on, on climate change. And, and it formed this unit that, that, that worked on the first uh, sort of lithium ion uh, battery. And, you know, they uh, they they took it to, um, you know, uh, battery shows, et cetera. And they, they presented it to the board of, of Exxon and they even, um, you, know, you know, started to build production. But then I think uh, what happened was oil prices uh, fell and, you know, the, Exxon realized it wouldn't be a sort of multi-billion industry. It wouldn't be enough to... To compete with with oil and gas and so they they sold off uh the battery industry and then you get to the 80s where yeah oil prices fell and it's interesting then exxon sort of went on to to be more in climate change denial and and focus on oil and gas but uh you know even even to this day you know they're proud of proud of that heritage um but the lithium-ion industry then moved uh to to japan which helped commercialize the first lithium-ion battery in 1991, and that was quickly used in, you know, camcorders. Um, you know, portable electronics started started coming out at that time, and smartphones and MP3 players. And then the industry moved from Japan to to China, and uh, yeah, this is interesting um, development. But I think the lithium-ion battery it came out of research in Oxford, actually, in in the UK. And I think it is one of those really critical enabling technologies. And, and the pioneers did, did win a Nobel Prize in chemistry for that because it allowed all this portable, um, you know, ele electric devices, right? And smartphones that we rely on. And it's also enabling EVs. So it really is a critical, what they call platform technology, enabling technology. And they, they, they've become so good enough that you know, electric vehicles with lithium-ion batteries today can serve, I believe, most use cases for most of us, right? Most of us don't drive huge distances, especially if you live in a city. You're not driving 500 miles to see your friend, right? Very rare. That, you know, so they've really improved. Uh, the cost has come down. So to solve climate change, we just need to massively scale up the technology that we have uh, existing. 
So China is now considered the battery superpower on this planet. And that may have really started with them pushing their population to purchase and use electric vehicles in 2009. What exactly did they do to encourage their population to go this route? And has it worked over the last 12 to 13 years now? Yeah, so it was interesting because the financial crisis, both the US and China did see it as an opportunity to, to stimulate uh, green, clean energy technologies, to stimulate that part of the economy. Um, Obama was also very interested in that. And they, you know, he launched programs to do that. Unfortunately, a lot of the US companies uh, did go bankrupt and were actually bought by Chinese companies. But in China, it, it was slightly more successful. I mean, a few hiccups, but they, you know, they heavily subsidize local governments uh, to purchase things like electric buses um, became huge in China. They basically accounted for almost all of the uh, usage of electric buses globally. Um, they've used things like license plates, a huge deals uh, in Chinese cities, getting getting license plates to, to, to be able to, to buy a car um, is critical. They've used that to encourage EVs. Uh, you know, they've had generous subsidies, both for consumers and, and government. And they've also uh, subsidized battery manufacturing, the whole the whole supply chain to to bring the cost down. Um, and, and, and what you see now is China's EV market is kind of over 50 percent of, of the world in terms of sales. So it's really incredibly dominant and they're going to surpass 25 percent of new sales being EVs, I think, probably this year. So. They've really come, you know, a long way, uh, very, very quickly. Was all this really a part of the Made in China 2025 initiative that was announced back in 2015? Yes, yeah, so, so it fits right into that initiative, which is China wants to move into advanced manufacturing and EVs fit right into that, right? If you go to battery factories, they're not full of, you know, low skilled labor um, at their desks. They're all robots. Um, you know, it's all robots and it's not it's not humans, not necessarily that many humans. So it's advanced manufacturing. It's extremely uh, high value add. It's at the cutting edge of innovation. It fits into that made in China 2025 uh, goal. And also it helps satisfy the middle class, right? And boost domestic consumption. The middle class care about air pollution. Uh, they, they, you know, they want, um, they want cool things to drive. So it satisfies a lot of, China's strategic aims. It reduces reliance on oil imports, oil, you know, oil imports. It um, boosts that high value add manufacturing. It helps reduce air pollution, which was threatening to cause social unrest in China. Uh, so, yeah, it fits bang right into, I think, what Xi Jinping wants. And plus, those who control the power, as you point out, and this is the case throughout human history, pretty much controls the world, too. Yeah, I think we're getting we're getting to a stage where Western countries to decarbonize, to to move away from fossil fuels in the near term are gonna have to rely on China. And if if they don't want to rely on China, they're really gonna have to launch massive, you know, Marshall plans styles, you know, stimulus and, and subsidies to build out manufacturing and, and do it quite quickly. And and we've seen that with the Inflation Reduction Act that the President Biden uh, has signed. It's really a step to to compete with China. That's that's what the kind of thing we're going to see more of. 
even still, you know, it's like watching a race. If one competitor gets a 10 yard head start on everybody else, the likelihood that they win that hundred yard race goes up exponentially. China is at least 10 yards ahead right now, if not maybe a little bit more than that. All right. We are going to get into uh, some of those materials now, some of those four materials, starting with lithium. Interesting side note on lithium. I did not know until reading this book. Lithium pretty much is to 7-Up what cocaine was to Coca-Cola back in the day. It was found in 7-Up around the turn of the 20th century. Thank you for that factoid. Now, China doesn't actually mine much lithium within its borders, Henry. So why are we completely reliant on them for batteries? Yeah, so it is interesting. You're right that um, China is not blessed with huge amounts of you know economic uh, deposits of lithium. So... A lot of the biggest producer of lithium is Australia, followed by Chile. But what happens is after that lithium is, is dug up, let's say in Australia in, in a mine, almost all of it is shipped to China to be processed into the type of high purity lithium chemical that you can use in an electric vehicle battery. These batteries are, you know, high voltage. Um, they can be they can catch fire, right? So you need to use high quality, high purity chemicals in these batteries so even though china is not producing digging up a lot of this lithium it, it processes um such a huge portion so I, I like to think of it as like the central clearinghouse right these materials are dug up and they're all sent on ships to, to china where then the material gets processed it enters a uh, battery um and then that's that's the supply chain the bulk of that supply chains in china and then it might come out again to electric vehicle in, in europe and the us so yeah, this this is the way if you if you think about the way global supply chains work, it's like these countries are digging up the raw materials and sending them to China. Uh, China's like, uh, you know, like it was historically the, the Middle Kingdom, the center of, of this supply chain. I think you said China produces 80 percent of mined lithium, whereas the U.S., it produces one percent. So the gap is obviously pretty wide there. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, what we could see going forward, and I think what what Biden and others want is Australia is obviously an ally. Um, you know, there's no reason why lithium from Australia can't be sent to be processed in North America or in Europe. And I think that's that's one thing that's that's got to happen. Um, it's going to happen. I mean, there's news recently about Tesla wanting to build a lithium refinery in the Gulf of uh, Gulf of Texas. So that's the kind of thing I think the West needs needs to do more of. So you know, you know, as I as I said, China's not hugely dominant in the in the mining of these materials so the west can catch up by building these other stages of the supply chain so you just did mention china uh, chile rather briefly a couple answers ago what makes the atacama desert in chile such an idyllic spot to collect raw lithium yeah it's uh you know it's one of the driest uh, deserts and uh it's so advantageous for lithium because it can be they evaporate the brine using the sun so your energy source is is the sun, which is free. So you're not using, you know, gas or, or oil or electricity. You use the sun to evaporate this this brine in, in huge pools in the desert. And then that's how you get to, you know, that's how you get to the uh, lithium uh, lithium chloride. And then you, then you turn it into lithium carbonate or lithium hydroxide for batteries. So that's the beauty of it. It's, uh, you know, it's in this in these salt flats but then you can evaporate it using the sun. You visited uh, these salt flats. Was visiting this place, uh, I guess, much more enjoyable in a sense than just going to your regular old desert? 
yeah, it was it was really interesting because I mean the heat is 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 so stark. You know, you really feel the heat in these places. Um, it it, it feels remote, and also one thing you realize is you know driving through the Atacama Desert is it's real mining territory. You pass a lot of copper mines. You know, Chile is uh, you know biggest copper producer. So you you really feel the sort of the weight of history of mining, um, it, you know, in Chile, the the copper mines, um, and then these lithium uh, salt flats. So it's a really interesting place to visit, and you also get sense of the vulnerability of the ecosystem there. Even though it is very dry, very hot. I mean, there are flamingos uh, living nearby. Um, you, you know, there is there is life, um, and it does does survive. So the question obviously becomes, is Chile doing enough to protect this asset that's obviously going to be very important going forward? But China, as they have had the foresight with a lot of other resources and where to actually go to get these, uh, does have its claws into this country as well. How did they gain control over Chile's largest lithium company? Yes, yeah, so, so they don't have control. They have a um, you know almost 30% stake in the company. But this is Chile's homegrown lithium company. It's it's sort of crown jewel. It has an interesting history because it was, um, it, it, you know, for for many years it was run by the the son-in-law of uh, Pinochet, who's obviously to this day a controversial figure in in Chile, um, former you know former dictator, um, but you know very right wing. Um, so it has this sort of controversial history. SQM. It also has you know allegations of of, of corruption surrounding it. But but China's uh, a Chinese lithium company made a very bold attempt to to buy a stake in this Chilean lithium company at the sort of height of the markets. They paid uh, paid a lot of money uh, for a stake in this this lithium company. And why they don't while they don't control it, um, you know they they have a stake, they have seats on the board, and who knows what the long term term game game of this investment is. But uh, as you said. Lithium in Chile is the lowest cost uh, production in the world. You've got two producers in Chile, uh, US company Albemarle, SQM, a Chilean producer, and, and China owns a significant stake in, in the Chilean uh, lithium producer. So it's, a, it's another sign of, of Chinese investment in this sector globally. Next up is cobalt from 1970 to 2009. We uh, extracted about 38,000 tons of cobalt a year to be used around the world. From 2010 to 2019, so that 10-year period, that number pretty much tripled and then some. Over 60% of the cobalt used by this planet comes from the Congo. That goes for yeah. things like batteries for smartphones, computers, uh, electric vehicles as well. Glencore is an example of a fossil fuels company making the transition to green energy source supplies. Glencore actually yeah. operates some of the most lucrative cobalt mines in the Congo. How messy is Glencore's history of establishing itself in the Congo, Henry? It's uh, it's fair to say that the, the history is um, fairly fairly complicated. Glencore is, um, you know, as you say, it's it's a big coal producer. Um, it has its roots as a, as a as a trading house, uh, you know, founded by Mark Rich, who was uh, wanted by the U.S. for many years and then pardoned by by Bill Clinton. It uh, was was a private company, and then it, it listed on the London Stock Exchange, and I think one of the you know one of the biggest stock exchange listings in in London's uh, recent history. Um, but there are lots of questions, and there's lots of there have there are investigations into how it got. Uh, its assets in, in in the DRC for many years. Its business partner was uh, the Israeli Dan Gertler, 
who has made a lot of investments in in the DRC in in the mineral sector. Um, he is uh, sanctioned by by the US, who accuse him of, you know, uh, engaging in in corrupt deals um, to get these assets. So there is a connection between uh, Glencore, Glencore and uh, Dan Gertler, and um, you know, we'll, Glencore basically ended up with uh, two of the best uh, DRC cobalt. Uh, copper assets. As a result, they are the biggest cobalt producer, um, and so therefore they're really set to to benefit from from cobalt use in 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 batteries. And it's a fascinating company because they they kept their coal. They're still producing coal, yet they also produce the cobalt nickel that end up in your batteries. And Tesla signed a deal with them to to buy cobalt from from the Congo. So. There's a direct link from Glencore into the electric vehicle you may 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 see on your street or or, or buy for your for your garage. So it's a really interesting player that uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna need Glencore. Um, these are kind of companies and and billionaires that we we are dealing with in this clean energy transition. And is Glencore a Chinese company? And if not, what is their connection to China? Because China processes ninety percent of the Congo's cobalt. Yeah, then they're, they're not a Chinese company, but you're right. A, a lot of the cobalt that the Glencore produces will be sent to China to be processed, um, as I said before, and then either goes into the Chinese supply chain or, or will go out to to be used in by Tesla, etc. So it it's not a Chinese company, but it still you still has that uh, supply chain that goes goes to China. So in 2016, yeah, oh, go, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say so after Glencore, you have a Chinese company that went into the Congo, the DRC, and, and bought, you know, one of the best cobalt and copper assets in the country, which a U.S. company actually sold to them, Freeport McMurray, which is a U.S. copper miner. So it sold to this Chinese company, and they are investing a lot in expanding cobalt, and they could be the biggest producer in the world, uh, you know, by the end of this decade. So they could overtake Glencore. So again, there we have the geopolitics on, on display. In 2016, the NGO Amnesty exposed the horrific conditions of artisanal mining in the Congo. Now, while I can't help but to picture a horn-rimmed glasses-wearing hipster with an ironic t-shirt mining for cobalt in the Congo, yeah. that's not exactly the scene there. So what did Amnesty inform the world about here, and how did that actually end up further complicating things? Yeah, so this is a really landmark report that you know, it, it's interesting because, you know, this, if you go to the DRC, um, the cobalt and copper there is so rich in these deposits in this area of the DRC that it's very close to the surface. So you can just go dig up this, this cobalt and copper by hand. And if you go there, you see all around the streets and the nearby area are buying houses, many with Chinese names or Chinese signs that you can just go up with your bag of cobalt and uh, copper and you can sell to these to these buyers at these markets um so this this you know had existed for, for for quite a few years that cobalt was going into our smartphones but the amnesty report i think was so uh shocking because the electric vehicle is supposed to be a green product right it's supposed to be a, a clean green product yet this cobalt was also ending up in in electric vehicles and they really you know, laid bare the extent of, you know, child labor involved in, in this industry. Um, these people go out to mine without any protection. Often they dig deep, deep tunnels, you know, they can cave in. Um, and it's really a bit of bit of a mess. And, 
you know, killing people as well. So that report was the first to sort of really resonate because it happened just as electric vehicles were, were starting to pick up steam. And I think it shocked a lot of people. And the initial reaction was that I think a lot of car companies just wanted nothing to do with the DRC. And they it was their nightmare to wake up and find themselves linked to, to child, child labor in the Congo. And I think that also led to efforts perhaps to reduce the use of cobalt in the battery. But then I think people and NGOs um, and others, you know, said, well, you know, the best thing is just not to, you know, flee the DRC just to either pretend it doesn't exist or just to ignore it entirely because we need the cobalt from the DRC. They are going to, they produce 70% right now and they're going to have a dominant share this decade. So then I think it came more about engagement. What can we do to improve the conditions on the ground? How can we work with the government to improve conditions on the ground? It's a very, very uh, tricky thing, not easy to do, but there is more effort now in trying to, you know, can you give them safety equipment? Can you set up these protected areas where they can they can mine and there's some sort of monitoring of accidents and, and deaths and, you know, you could try to improve the situation because you still want them to have their livelihood still, you know, there aren't that many other, other job opportunities uh, around. So I think it sort of shifted after that initial reaction. But still, what I think, we still don't have a, a situation where a car maker, a Tesla or someone else is willing to say, I will source from these individual miners. Um, I've I've sorted out their safety equipment, protected area, and I'm willing to source from that. We we still don't see that uh, happening. So probably a lot of this cobalt still goes to China, and we don't know necessarily what what happens to it. Do you have any hope that that will happen in the near future? So the the government there, the the DRC government, is trying to form a government company that will buy up this cobalt that will ensure the safety, uh, make sure they get paid a fair price, um, et cetera. But I think it is a very complicated thing to solve because it's quite a big area. And as I said, it's just near the surface. You can just go mine it. Um, there's lots of people doing it. So it's very hard to control um, what's going on. So as you mentioned, one of the results of that report was less use of cobalt in electric vehicle batteries. That means more nickel in those batteries. More nickel means more energy stored. And once again, the world is very reliant on China for the production of nickel that goes into these batteries. China does not produce the nickel in terms of mining it from within its own borders. So where does China turn for its nickel? Yeah, Indonesia, basically. And, uh, you know, Indonesia's uh, basically what Indonesia has been quite clever because Indonesia has all this nickel. It's going to it's going to produce, you know, most of the nickel this decade that, that we need for electric vehicles. Um, but Indonesia a few years ago said we're no longer going to export just raw nickel dug up and, and shipped out of the country. We want to attract processing into Indonesia, value add into Indonesia. And, and Chinese companies took up this uh, took up this challenge with great gusto, and they went to Indonesia and they built these massive industrial parks full of nickel processing facilities. And there's their own port, their own five star hotel, etc. Um, and the nickel is 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 mined in Indonesia, then processed in Indonesia, and then then sent to to China to be made into batteries. But Indonesia is a country where coal is is really a significant export, but also powers a lot of its electricity. So 
you get the problem where this nickel is is being produced in energy intense way using coal-fired power yet they are the main source of nickel that we need this decade so it's a really tricky situation and and i would add that indonesia and this area of indonesia is a very biodiverse area um you know there's lots of different species the nickel mining also can impact the environment Am I remembering correctly also that China was encouraging the raw nickel ban that Indonesia eventually enacted? Yeah, well, this is one of the stories that I that I tell in the book that, you know, there seems to be some, you know, some sort of uh, there were meetings that happened before the ban. And, and it could have been beneficial to to some of these Chinese companies for the ban to take place because they already had processing uh, plants, you know, in construction or in design. So. Once the ban happened, you're right, it gave a huge disadvantage to, to Western companies, Western producers outside of Indonesia who could no longer buy that raw nickel and they hadn't set up the processing in Indonesia. And no doubt related, but metal traders learned that someone was jacking up the price of nickel in 2019. Who was doing it and why? Yeah, so one of the biggest players in nickel in Indonesia is this Chinese stainless steel company called Qingshan. And it's, it's a fascinating company. It's uh, grew out of a private enterprise, you know, in 1980s China, when, you know, Deng Xiaoping and, and others were really opening the country up slowly to, to private enterprise, to, to market reforms. You know, now it's the biggest stainless steel producer in the world. I mean, stainless steel is not that sexy, but it's used in a lot of things, right? Cutlery, um, a lot of other applications. So, this company is a is a colossal giant, and I think it's another example of of China dominating these these areas that you know we might not think too much about. But they also produce nickel for for EV batteries, and you know they were they were at, at that time you mentioned they were they were pinpointed as buying up a lot of uh, nickel on on the London Metal Exchange, which is where nickel is is traded. And you're right, the ban came out, and um, you know it could have been quite beneficial to them. And then earlier this year, the same company got in trouble when after Russia invaded Ukraine, um, the price of nickel went up. But this company had gone short the price of nickel. So they were betting on nickel prices falling because of all their investment in Indonesia that they made and the supply that they knew was coming. And they also got caught short and, and lost uh, you know billions of dollars were on the, on the hook for billions of dollars. The fourth and final metal is copper. The amount of copper that we use in our day-to-day -day lives is truly impossible to fathom. Just speaking yeah. specifically about electric vehicles, according to this book, 30,000 EVs use the same amount of copper as a skyscraper. Why do we use so much <laughs> copper, Henry? And how much more profound does it become with EVs since they really entered the fray a decade ago? Yeah, so EVs use you know considerably more amount of, of, of copper than than internal combustion engines because of the you know the wiring, the battery has 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 copper in it, copper foil uh, in the battery, and you also need copper obviously for the the charging infrastructure. Um, and if you think about electrifying everything, you know this is what people talk about moving away from you know gas, uh, you know fossil fuels, moving towards electricity. Electricity demand is is going to go up considerably. We need we need copper, um, you know, for connecting this renewable energy, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So copper demand is is really going to increase. And copper mines are, are really really hard to build and discover 
the story I tell in the book is uh, of Robert Friedland, who's a billionaire miner. And he, you know, he first went to the Congo in late 90s to, to look for copper. And only recently this copper mine went into production. So these are huge mines, huge projects. They require a lot of investment. And so the world's going to need a lot of copper, but where's it going to come from, right? Who's who's going to build these mines? Which countries are they going to be in? So we're heading for, yeah, heading for some difficulties in terms of copper, because it just is one of the best electrical conductors. Um, I think you can use you can use silver, but that's obviously uh, probably not ideal. And China possesses, and China produces half the copper used on Earth. And once again, they're not mining it themselves. It's That's hard right. not to wonder if there isn't a connection between the Belt and Road Initiative that was announced a little bit less than a decade ago and what China has been doing in terms of harvesting resources for the sake yeah. of making everybody else that much more reliant on these these materials that we need for our various technologies do those two things go hand in hand in your mind as somebody who has not only discovered who has not only uh, looked closely at the ev industry but also someone who has studied china for as long as you have yeah i think they do i mean the belt and road is 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 quite vague um in terms of details and you know, it's one of those Communist Party slogans that get attached to to a lot of things. And you see a lot of companies saying, oh, you know, the, this is part of the Belt and Road Initiative because you know, they want to curry political favor or that's the, you know, that's the slogan um, of the day. Um, but saying that, you're right, uh, Belt and Road Initiative, uh, you know, has included uh, copper in, in Kazakhstan, um, you know, Latin America, a lot of countries have signed up to Belt and Road Initiative. You know, Argentina just signed up this year, Chile, uh, big copper producer, obviously. So there is there is a connection in the sense that the whole aim of the, the Belt and Road Initiative is to you know, encourage Chinese investment in, in infrastructure, in um, energy, et cetera, and knit these countries closer to, to a China, China-led uh, you know, global, global order or, or global uh, system. But I do think we have to be careful because it does seem that it's quite quite vague in terms of what what it's what it's trying to uh, what it's trying to achieve. But that but that definitely is um, a connection. And just in terms of yes, it does look like the world is becoming more dependent on China, and China in some senses uh, you know may becoming less dependent on on the rest of the world, right? And that's that's the vision where they want to rely more on domestic consumption, more on, um, you know, more on what they produce themselves. But I would say that in saying that, as you pointed out, China is is reliant on on raw materials from other countries. It's reliant on oil and gas from from other countries. So it, we may rely on China for, for a lot of these technologies in clean energy, but they also rely on other countries for the raw materials. And that's why you've seen a lot of this Chinese investment into raw materials, into, into Africa, into Latin America, is because this is a, a strategic vulnerability for them and they, they want to make sure they have access to the raw materials. China is not the kind of place that just sits back and says, oh, we'll buy it from the free market. They, they want to make sure they have secure supplies. Yeah, the aggressor uh, usually wins in a situation like that. Now, your book, Volt Rush, also explores deep sea mining for a lot of these same materials. Why is a rock that has been discovered on the ocean floor a huge cause for optimism amongst those searching for that next great frontier for all the metals that we've been discussing today, Henry? 
Yeah, so it's um the deep sea is you know really unexplored area. It was fascinating for me to learn that you know we we know more about you know the moon than than perhaps the, the deep sea. It's uh it's not not well explored. It's obviously difficult to explore, and I think we're finding out now about all the all the life that's down there and discovering species the whole time. But on the bottom of the deep sea, you, you do have these polymetallic nodules. They're called. Uh, which you know, which uh, sort of potato-sized um, you know rocks formed over millions of years that actually contain manganese and uh, nickel and cobalt, um, and so they're all the sort of minerals that we need for batteries. So it does seem extraordinary that you have these rocks lying on the the bottom of the deep sea. That if you could harvest them and process them, they could help satisfy this demand. But the controversy is, what are we setting off if we go down this path, right? Are we going to set off a, a new scramble for resources at the bottom of the deep sea? What kind of regulations do we need in place to, to make sure it's, you know, it's not disruptive? And having destroyed so much of the environment on land, are we willing to destroy some of this delicate ecosystem in, in, in the deep sea that we're only discovering about now? So all of these questions um, are yet to be completely completely answered and it's fascinating because the body that is deciding all of this is this body called the international seabed authority based in kingston jamaica it's a un body and you have you that's know not, you have, that sounds like an organization and yeah. that sounds like an organization in a james bond movie precisely yeah, precisely it has that feeling about it and you know it, it is a bit opaque and they have these meetings they you know obviously got over 100 countries there and they all have to agree on how the deep sea is going to be mined, what sort of regulations are going to be in place, what sort of royalties, taxes, et cetera, are going to be paid. And, you know, they also have commercial companies pushing for them to, to get these regulations signed because these companies obviously have investors, et cetera, they want to get going. So I do think it will, will happen at some point, but I don't know when, uh, and I don't know what the regulations are going to look like, whether it's going to be economic uh, when, when it happens. Have any of the environmental horrors of deep sea mining been realized yet even if we are still really at the start of this activity no to, i mean to be honest it's it's more the research uh as far as i understand r&d stage um experimental stage uh that you know hasn't really started at any sort of industrial level yet so we uh research is being carried out but we haven't seen any sort of industrial size facilities yet and one interesting side note, how has the CIA actually been involved in deep sea mining over time? Yeah, so it's interesting because uh, the CIA was involved, um, it, you know, it, it used one of these deep sea mining uh, ships under the guise of deep sea mining to recover a Soviet uh, submarine, uh, you know, back in the Cold War. And it was actually a ship that went on to, to, to do deep sea mining uh, expeditions. So it's sort of interesting uh, history and subterfuge um, that went on then. So you finish your book with the obvious question, the question that I think this uh, entire book is building to, and that is, what can we possibly do? Because obviously on their surface, electric vehicles are a better idea than gas-powered vehicles. So what can you do? And you explore various possibilities, including not just recycling, but reusing. Why is reusing a potential major answer here? Yeah, so I think, uh, 
you're, you're right. Those two things are going to be key. Recycling is is really key, right? Why, uh, you know, why waste materials? Why not? Why not reuse them? It's not going to solve all our problems, and especially in this initial stage where demand is increasing, EV sales are increasing. Uh, you know, those those batteries are going to last a long time in in vehicles. You know, fifteen more years. So we're not going to see a lot of those batteries come back for recycling for for quite a long time. But you can imagine by mid-century or 2040 plus that recycling is going to provide quite a quite a significant um, input. And and as always, when when prices are high, when the incentives there, you know you know people can get material from from waste material etc. to to recycle. So recycling is is key. It's much more environmentally friendly. It just makes sense on so many levels. Um, reuse was a kind of interesting thing I hadn't hadn't thought about before. But you do have these these you know. Lithium-ion batteries are actually a very good technology. They last a long time. Um, even once they've been used in a car, they can be used for, for other things rather than using energy to, to break them down and, and recycle them. So you can use them for energy storage, right? Um, you know, houses in the US now are interested in, you know, home batteries for help with blackouts, et cetera, or to store energy. Um, grids need large batteries to store renewable energy. They can be used in, in that, or you can even fit them to older vehicles, right? You just take out the engine and replace them with the uh, lithium-ion batteries. So there are sort of two options. You don't always need to recycle because the recycling does take energy, uh, you know, does create carbon emissions, or you can reuse them um, until they, they finally die and then they can be recycled. So yeah, there's, there's a couple of ways to just, you know, it's the same with energy at the moment with this gas crisis in Europe. You know, we can use resources more efficiently. We can use energy more efficiently. I think at the moment we waste quite a lot of resources and we waste quite a lot of energy. And, you know, that's the kind of thing we need to improve on. So you also have a chapter titled The World's Greenest Battery. What does the world's greenest battery consist of and just how realistic that it can be made on a mass scale? Yeah, so what, what we're saying is, you know, renewable energy, solar and wind is so important, not just to decarbonize the grid, right, the power that's coming to you and I's houses, but it's important for industry, because what we're going to see is industry shift to areas that have clean energy and making batteries is incredibly energy intense. And if, as in the past, it's been done using coal fired power in, in some areas of China, that that is not good, right, because we're trying to reduce every ton of carbon um, that, that we emit, right? So that we get to net zero where we're not emitting more than we're uh, taking out. So we, you know, battery production needs to use clean energy. And the, the story I tell is a company in, in Sweden, which has lots of hydropower, and they set up a battery company from scratch to produce European batteries using clean energy, using recycled materials. And that's the way they say they're gonna create a greener battery. And it's true. And we're seeing now companies in China shift to areas where there is hydropower in China, where there is clean energy. So they're, they're doing that too. And then we see places like Quebec in Canada, which has huge hydropower. Industry is, is going there. So we're going to see a shift where a lot of this supply chain moves to clean energy. Because as I said in my point, an EV is a, a green product. You know, So we need to reduce all the emissions in in the in the production that leads to the EV because then it just makes it a much greener solution, right? Once you're producing EVs at scale, millions and millions uh, every year. So this Swedish company has 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 you know started production, 
they they've raised billions they've started production um let's see how it goes i think it's uh interesting it's a well-needed challenge to chinese dominance in this sector all right last question henry because you admitted at the start of this conversation that your curiosity here was in part because you wanted to buy and you did purchase an electric vehicle for your family I'm speaking with you from Austin right now, which is uh, currently the headquarters of Tesla. So yeah, how, that's right. how, how much do you love your Tesla? Yeah, I love it, actually. And it's, uh, you know, during the pandemic, it, it was great for our family. Um, it's it's still great now. I think one of the interesting things you've seen in UK uh, driving data is average miles being driven in the UK was falling quite significantly from you know 2000 and, until recently. But if you look at electric vehicles, people drive them more. And I think that's what we found, you know, you feel, you know, you're not polluting the street or the the nursery or, or the school, you do, you do use it more. So it's, uh, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what that does to, to traffic, et cetera. But um, yeah, I, I love it. It's incredibly smooth, accelerates incredibly quickly. And it's been interesting to get to know the charging situation in the UK. I don't know what it's like in the US, but, you know, charging can be a bit of the wild west in in the UK at the moment. There's loads of different companies, all with different charging, uh, you know, different charging systems. You have to each one has an app. You have to log on to the app, you know, put your details in or a card. So that all needs to be resolved. I think it really is a wild west with all these different charging systems, right? And also, as as a driver, when I've done longer distances, you realize how critical charging is, right? Governments need to invest in charging. You need to be 100% sure when you stop you can charge and that the charge is not out of service i've seen i've seen charges you know out of service so that's one thing the governments can do is really support charging infrastructure because then then you don't need a massive battery necessarily if you, if you can you'd be confident you can charge yeah i feel like uh, if there was a bonus chapter that you were to include for the paper back edition when it comes out in a year it probably has something to do with where are we getting this electricity from that we're then charging yeah. our cars with? I mean, you look at a place like California here in the U.S., and uh, they just put an edict in place, and I'm forgetting the exact year, but uh, it's only electric vehicles after a certain yeah. point. But they're also de dealing with serious electricity issues right now. So it's like there's a it's a bit of a catch twenty two. So I'll be fascinated to That's see right. the direction that all that heads. Obviously, renewable energy is one possibility. I don't. I, I do wonder if we don't see a comeback with nuclear of sorts because that is such a, a clean burning source of energy as well, and it seems to be able to operate on a scale that uh, uh, many other energy sources are not able to right now, including coal, of course. I see, and and you've seen, um, and I think as I said earlier, China is getting to a stage where EV sales are becoming so big that they're going to encounter, I guess, before us, a lot of these problems with how do you charge all these EVs? What does that do to the electricity grid? You know, how are we going to, um, yeah, incorporate the EVs in, into the electricity grid, right? And that's that's going to be really be a next big challenge for US, China, a lot, a lot of countries, right? Once, okay, we, 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 we're producing EVs, there are lots of models, people are buying them. But how how do how do we make sure everyone can charge? You know, it's a huge amount of electricity demand. Can we integrate EVs into the grid in, in a better way? Right. That's that's all all to be played for in the future. He is Henry Sanderson. The new book, I can pretty much guarantee it's going to be one of my books of the year at the end of this year. Oh, it is you. called Volt Rush, the winners and losers in the race to go green. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Henry, thank you so much for the time today. And thank you for this hugely important book. Thanks so much. I'm glad you enjoyed it.
Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to Joshua Bates for the video editing. If you have any video editing needs, hit him up on Instagram at Forger Digital. Thanks as always to you for checking us out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.